Hi, and welcome to the Public Diplomat Dialogues. This is Professor Guy Golan from Syracuse University, welcoming you to Season 3 of our podcast talking public diplomacy, nation branding, and everything international. Today in the studio, we have a returning guest, Professor Sean Powers from Georgia State. Sean, welcome. Good morning. Welcome, Guy. Thank you for, for letting me come back on. All right, very cool. Well, Sean, your new book, uh, The Real Cyber War, co-authored by Michael Jablonski. Cyber War, who is fighting who? Yeah, so uh, Michael and I started working on this project in, in 2013, and uh, we were inspired by a need to really look at the different ways in which states, in particular states and other political actors, were competing to shape the rules of Internet uh, use and connectivity. And so The Real Cyber War, the title of the book, is, is a reference to the competition between these political actors to determine the rules, the norms, and technologies that form the global internet. Okay, good stuff. Um, we're going to talk about some of the key concepts from your book, and if you can provide our listeners with a basic understanding of uh, some of the key uh, chapters. So let's start with um, Hillary Clinton and... Um, the idea of an internet freedom paradigm, um, freedom to connect. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton outlined uh, the freedom to connect doctrine in a series of speeches uh, she gave in 2010, mostly in 2010. But the, the idea, the central idea behind the freedom to connect is that information flows should be able to transfer between countries freely, that is to say, without regulation or taxation. And that idea actually goes way back in, in U.S. foreign policy history, uh, even as far back as the 19th century. Uh, and it was uh, an idea that was crucially inserted into international governance by the Clinton-Gore administration in the 1990s, as the United States was deregulating its telecommunications uh, regulations. Uh, it pushed the same kind of deregulatory schemes on the world based on the idea that information should be free and information should be a commodity and thus any restriction on information flows would be considered trade barriers. So Sean, uh, information is a commodity and in your book you guys talk about um, the need or the attempt by governments to keep or to hold information sovereignty. What does that term mean, information sovereignty? Information sovereignty is, is uh, a description of what we see as, as governmental efforts to control information flows. And, and when I say control, I mean it in a very broad sense. And so governments around the world have always aimed to control inform information flows. But what we're seeing today is really uh, unprecedented attempts by governments to control, not just through regulations and censorship, but also through subsidizing domestic information companies, through developing new technologies that allow for protections from foreign countries and foreign technological providers, and sometimes even the use of force. And importantly, these regimes of information sovereignty are not just being implemented by Russia and China, but also by Western countries, uh, two of which we highlight in the book being Denmark and the United States. Can you talk about Denmark? Sure. Denmark has the, the world's, uh, well, I shouldn't say the world's, but Denmark has Europe's most uh, robust data retention policies. These are requirements on telecommunications and internet service providers to retain 
all sorts of information about users, including what they have been doing online and the types of communications they've been sending, so that law enforcement agents can go back through these and search for clues if, if there are crimes that they're investigating or search for evidence of criminal uh, conduct. And, and the EU uh, courts have actually struck down these regulations as unconstitutional, but Denmark continues to protest. Um, just as a good example of, of how Western countries are also uh, very keen on controlling information flows. Mm-hmm. And of course, the United States, uh, the government got in trouble for spying on its own citizens, right? Yeah, I, I think um, that's the, the best known kind of control mechanism that the U.S. government has uh, been exposed about. But I, I would also want to mention that the United States government is, is really the world's uh, most uh, vocal advocate for uh, copyright and intellectual property protections, which are fundamentally also controls on information. It's it's a, a legal mechanism to say it's illegal to share certain types of information if you don't have permission from the copyright holder. And we've seen in, in many times how, how those controls are actually manipulated for really uh, nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, um, we, we spoke about the government spying on citizens, but Governments also spy on one another. Can you speak about that, please? Yeah, I mean, you know, surveillance on, on governments by governments has been going on for as long as we've had governments. And so uh, no surprise there. And in fact, um, I think that's probably the least shocking uh, element of the Snowden revelations. It's, it's almost unfortunate that so much attention has been paid to, for example, the NSA uh, spying on Germany's uh, Chancellor Merkel because, it, it, of course, it's not surprising at all. What is surprising, what really is a game changer from my perspective, is uh, how the NSA, along with its British counterpart, GCHQ, have gone to extraordinary means to try to access as much information about average citizens as possible, including breaking into private sector infrastructure to vacuum up years' worth of data about Google search queries and emails. So that that information can be stored and potentially retrieved for any number of reasons down the road. So we have uh, government spying on citizens on one hand, government spying on one another on the other. How do we uh, limit one and not the other? Well, it's it's actually it's easy. You know, governments can choose who they target when they decide their surveillance practices, and it's it's fairly easy to. Uh, target your surveillance equipment and assets on government actors and offices and not necessarily on the private sector. Um, it seems like those are pretty easy things to differentiate. Uh, what's, what's important, of course, I mean, it's never going to be a, a clear red line that can't be crossed, but there needs to be a line somewhere drawn in the sand that protects uh, citizens and, and companies, the private sector, non-government organizations from receiving the same kind of uh, surveillance scrutiny that governments will get and will always get. I mean, it's, it's impossible to say governments will stop surveilling on each other. That's part of statecraft. But surveilling on everyone else's citizens is a whole different uh, topic. Okay, well, let's talk about this topic, the right to privacy. Um, what is the right to privacy, and do we actually have privacy? Yeah, so there's, there's lots of definitions of the right to privacy, but for the purpose of uh, the book and, and kind of audience understanding, when I say privacy, I'm referring to the right to control how information about you or information that you may have conveyed is shared publicly. So controlling information about you or information that you uh, have produced and its publicity. And uh, privacy is crucial to society for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to just mention two, uh, which, which are outlined in greater detail in the book. The first one is privacy, part of the right to privacy is the right to 
to anonymously communicate ideas uh, with other people. That is to say, keeping your identity private when you make an argument in public. And uh, one of the things I talk about in great length in the book is, is the centrality of protecting anonymous communication to allow for dissent in democratic and non-democratic societies. And it's important here to just remind listeners that the United States was founded uh, by a group of folks, the, the founding fathers, who communicated anonymously through pseudonyms in the way they wrote to their, their local newspapers. And so uh, we, we Americans in particular understand, they should understand quite clearly the centrality of protecting someone's identity to allow for a robust debate, in, in especially in non-democratic political systems. I want to mention one other uh, important reason why I think privacy needs to be uh, better protected, and that is the centrality of privacy for what I call pre-deliberation or discussions about policies that may be controversial. What, I, what we write about in the book is that there would be no civil rights movement, there'd be no gay rights movement without privacy because those movements start with private discussions about how things need to change in society. And if those private discussions can't be protected, people will be afraid to have them in the first place. And so the lack of privacy is directly related to a lack of change in society, which I think is really, really scary. Sean, you speak about governments, but what about corporations, uh, the carriers, the cable companies, uh, the Googles, uh, the Apples of the world? They have a lot of information about us as well. Absolutely, and I think people are rightfully concerned uh, about the amount of information that these, these companies have. Uh, I do, there are two things I'd like to say about this. First is that I think people are, should be more concerned about governments having access to this data than, than the private sector, and that's just because of the power that governments wield in terms of law enforcement, um, seizing assets, putting people in prison. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a scale of, of significance that most private corporations don't touch upon. But that's not to say that private corporations uh, are, need to be more critical about how they uh, access and store private information. What I envision in, in part of the uh, reversal, I think, of the kind of surveillance regimes that we've seen emerge in the last decade, what I envision is, is the emergence of a right to protect one's information, almost the reversal of copyright away from protecting corporate uh, private interests and revenue streams and copyright as a way to protect our own information. My information, my communications on Facebook are copyrighted and Facebook shouldn't have the right to use those communications to sell advertisements. Um, it's not a far stretch, legally speaking, to make that case. And I, I think we're going to start to see a lot of interesting uses of existing laws to try to protect personal information from corporate manipulation. Well, Sean, I don't think we can speak about uh, privacy and um information, governments, corporations, without talking about the big one, net neutrality. Can you explain what net neutrality really means and why it matters? Sure. Net neutrality is a term that refers to the principle that uh, an internet service provider should not be able to decide which, which parts of the data that you're using uh, travel faster than others. It's, it's the idea that everything that you try to access online should go at the same exact speed. And, and the reason why this matters is there is growing concern, rightfully so, that internet service providers were prioritizing access to information that was in their financial best interest. And so, you know, for example, Verizon, an internet service provider, may intentionally slow down our Skype conversation because Skype is a, a threat to Verizon's phone business. Uh, and there's lots of examples of, of real-world examples that actually took place and if you start to think about the potential consequences down the road, 
that's why the FCC stepped in and, and required internet service providers to stop discriminating against certain types of data streams. Uh, it's, a, it's a great decision. I'm really uh, I'm thrilled that the FCC reversed its stance and, and kind of aggressively came out against internet service providers to protect consumer and entrepreneurial rights. Uh, I do want to mention, though, at the international stage that there are going to be consequences. And what I mean by that is at, at a, a fundamental level, net neutrality is a, an attempt by the government to control how information is flowed. Now, we agree that this control is a good one. It's beneficial for customers. But from a regulatory perspective, other governments will look at this and say, well, the American government has controls on information flows online. Uh, why can't we also implement controls on information flows? Uh, and, and in those cases, they may not be thinking about net neutrality, but because we have these controls, it does further the idea that governments are allowed to implement control mechanisms or regimes of information sovereignty. Very good. Well, Sean, your book is uh, quite comprehensive. You're dealing with a lot of really complex topics. Uh, let's focus on public diplomacy. Uh, what, does, what are the key takeaways from your book to people, practitioners in the field of public diplomacy? Uh, that's a great question, Guy, and I, I want to focus really on, on the impact that surveillance has on public diplomacy. Uh, there's lots of intersections, but this one is worth talking about for, for a minute. Um, Edward Snowden's revelations discredited years of, I would call it genuinely you know, authentic, good work on behalf of, of the State Department and the private sector to reach out to foreign publics through technology, using technology as a way to connect people, both here in the United States to uh, folks abroad, but also folks abroad to folks abroad. And, and this was really crucial to the emergence of what, what we describe as 21st century statecraft. And the, the problem now is uh, that Snowden's revelations have demonstrated that the National Security Agency with its British counterparts have been manipulating technological platforms to access information about people all around the world. And this discredits uh, really a tremendous amount of work that had been done through technology to enhance American diplomacy. It also uh, threatens the neutrality or the credibility of technology companies that were increasingly play, playing a, a central role in, in diplomacy. And Google, for example, or Facebook are no longer seen as potential neutral interlocutors with foreign populations. And then finally, I would say that it also has uh, really triggered uh, governmental interest in increasing control mechanisms, again, information sovereignty, and the long-term consequences of these uh, control mechanisms make public diplomacy harder. As countries become more hardened off from one another online, public diplomacy becomes uh, much more difficult to conduct on the internet, and we may actually see a regression in terms of the types of, of programs that are capable of reaching foreign audiences. We may have to go back to person-to-person -to -person diplomacy, which is great, but it's a lot more costly and much less efficient. Absolutely. Well, you know, you speak about the United States and its uh, allies in the West, but um, in the age of, count of uh, cyber wars, uh, we see China very active, we see the Russians very active. Uh, is this not an issue for everybody out there? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the lack of cybersecurity online is really chilling, and, and almost everyone has been affected somehow, either through their insurance company or through the federal government or through a, a third party. I mean, it's, it's almost everyone's data has been stolen uh, in some way or another, and that is, is certainly frightening. Of course, um, this is also triggering governmental interest in, in greater controls. And so uh, the concern is that the lack of coordination between governments on what types of controls are 
um, credible and and still protect people's rights. And what they're actually doing, which is really just trying to control the information to, to stop the cyber attacks from happening, means that we're going to have uh, really a variety of different state efforts to, to create a secure web. But that secure web may not be really good for global communication. It may not be good for international collaboration. It may not be good for learning about foreign cultures. And people do learn about other countries through the news media. So um, consistent reports in um, the Western press about Chinese hacking, for example, may conflict with the kind of values that China wants to promote through the Confucius Centers. Yeah, and, and, and um, this is going to become more of a problem. I mean, yesterday the White House reported that Obama was considering different ways to retaliate against China for the hack against the Office of Personnel Management. And so we're, we're, we're really at a crucial point here where cyber wars are spilling over into more traditional conflict realms. I mean, I think uh, trade sanctions was something that was discussed. And so um, how this affects kind of broader branding kind of issues is interesting. It's something that I don't think a lot of states have given nearly enough thought to. Well, we're definitely entering a new, a new age of uh, cyber wars and cyber engagement. Sean, uh, excellent stuff. If people want to learn more about your book, how can they do that? Sure. It would be great if they wanted to learn more. You could check out the book and, and some sample material at uh, realcyberwar.com. It's the title of the book, realcyberwar, all one word, dot com. Uh, and there's some sample content, some interviews, uh, a couple op-eds that I've written based on the book. And, of course, links to where you can purchase it. Okay, and we'll definitely uh, link down to your uh, page and the Amazon page as well. And, Sean, if people want to follow you on Twitter. Yeah, my, my Twitter handle is at Sean Powers, my name, S-H-A-W-N-P-O-W-E-R-S. Okay, Dr. Powers, thanks again for coming in and talking to us about your book, and good luck with it. Thank you, Professor Golan. It's always a pleasure. Okay, and for more about the many facets of public diplomacy, nation branding, and all international, please continue to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and always um, on the website, thepublicdiplomat.com. For Sean Powers, I'm Guy Golan. Thank you very much. All right, good talking to you, Guy. Take care. <laughs>